Well, good morning. How are we all doing? Good. It's great to be with you this morning in 2020. Unlike Vince, I don't have an obsession with the numbers and how to say 2020 or to, to whatever it is. Um, I'm just glad to be here with you. And uh, the Cleek family is off to a good start, but we had something happen yesterday that is almost unheard of. We had a Saturday where we had to go nowhere all day long. I don't think any of us left the house at one point for the entire day. And in order to celebrate that, Tammy made a list of all the things that we had to get done. You know, the first one was fold the laundry, five minute clean up. Um, and the last part of the list was uh, pile the wood, which is the dreaded event of the day at the clique household where we move the wood from one spot to the other so it's easier to get to in the rain. And then I realized as we're doing that, it's like, oh, no, there's one more thing that we've got to do while they have their work clothes on. Um, and in order, in order for you to understand that, you need to know um, that we got a dog, right? This is Benny the dog, and as I've told you before, he is the cutest dog in the world. He's a little different than what do you No, he is, trust me. But he's a little different than the kind of dogs I grew up with on the farm, right? I mean, those were farm dogs. Benny likes to lick the top of my head. I've never had another dog that likes to do that. Of course, back then I had hair up there, so it was a different experience altogether. And uh, he is, uh, let's just say, a little better kept than the dogs I grew up with on the farm, right? Um, you know, Man, this dog's got everything that a dog could ever want. Um, luckily, he's the only one in our house that's not addicted to screens, so that's a positive thing as well. But one of the things about Benny the dog is that, you know, we let him out. He's a house dog, and that's just weird. But um, he's a house dog, and then we let him out on this back porch so he can do his business, right? But one of the things that was shocking about this dog when we got him, the uh, the trainer said, well, here's your dog. And now, one of the things you need to be careful with is just don't let him run. This was when he was really little, probably wouldn't happen today. You gotta be, you just can't let him run out in public because like a, a bird could come along and take him and fly away. Because <laughs> he was tiny. And I'm, can you imagine that standing there and watching your dog fly away with your kids on the ground? So we let him out on the back porch, and he's got this little spot in a, in a pad, right, where he's supposed to do his business. And he's pretty good at one and not at the other. But anyways, but the thing about Benny the dog is that he doesn't like to use the pad if it's wet. So he's picky like that. So what we were doing yesterday is we were building a little pea shelter for Vin, Benny so that the spot where he's supposed to go is dry, Okay. And I thought, this is going to be a great learning experience for my kids. They're going to paint this thing. So I got this piece of wood out, and I put it down. And I had the three of them there, and we start painting it. And I'm like, these kids don't know how to paint, right? I mean, Jonathan's got the brush like this. Like Tim Busk was rolling over in his grave back there, right? I mean, he's not dead, but he would do a run anyway. David would load up the roller and then he'd like put it right in the corner and he's like got this pool of paint down here and it's not going anyways. And I'm like having to show him how to hold the brush and put the paint in the middle and spread it out. You're wondering what in the world does this have to do with anything? I'm getting there. It's what blew me away was that painting seems so basic. Everybody, one of us has done it at one point or the other and yet they didn't know how, right? 
They had to be, we had to back the truck up a little bit and say, no, this is how you, you paint with the brush, or this is how you roll it up, and this is how much paint you want on the brush. And it reminded me of our basics series or distinctives that we're doing today. Sometimes I feel a little bad that, you know, I look at some of you and I've preached one version of this sermon to you like five times, and if you don't know it now, either you're never going to get it or I can't get it to you, right? Um, but as I'm watching these kids paint, thinking, you know, sometimes it's really worth our time to back up and not assume that we all know the basics or we've ever done them before. Because the fact of the matter is that my kids had never painted before and they stunk at it. But by the end of the time, we ended up with a piece of siding that's green. It was good. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to back up and look at the basics of how Sierra Grace envisions being church. And the first thing I want to say about that is that we by no means think we figured this out or this is the best or the only way to do it. This is our way to do it. And the wonder of the body of Christ is that if you don't like it this way, I can tell you four or five great churches in this community that do it different. We've had some people go, one of the things that's distinct about us is that we love to have our children in the service with us, worshiping with us. Some people don't like that. There's other churches that do it a different way. There's some churches that are very bent on one theological approach. That's not us, as we'll talk about in a second. But I know other churches in town that do it that way. So if that's what you want, come talk to me. I can, I can help you with that. But we're just going to talk a little bit about um, what makes Sierra Grace Sierra Grace. And I know that there's some of you that I'm looking out here um, are new to us. And so hopefully today when I'm going to talk about Jesus as our head and a little bit about eldership, um, that you'll get to know that. And then next week, Brian's going to talk about community and participation and serving. Okay? So let's pray again and prepare our hearts to just do Sierra Grace and Christianity 101. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Um, first of all, I'm just overwhelmed by your graciousness and goodness to us, and I'm overwhelmed by my friends that are here this morning that love you and want to worship you. We ask that you would bless this time, that everything that I say would be from you, and that our hearts and ears would be um, soft so that you might be in that process that you're continually doing to transform us into your image. We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, on from the dog. What does it mean for us to say that Jesus is our head? Everything that we do and are, we try to take seriously who Jesus was and make that inform us that Jesus is our head. It's not something that we made up. Paul is the one who articulated this so beautifully in the book of Ephesians when he said, And God placed all things under Jesus' feet. And appointed Jesus to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus is the head of the church, and you're the fullness of it, or we're the fullness of it. Notice that's a two-part statement, huh? The first is, is that he is our leader. When we gather together to an elder board, we pray that God lead us, Jesus lead us. The second part of us is the church is the fullness of him. You know what that means? We've got a big job to do, don't we? We are the ones that take Jesus to this world that he loved and made in his image, or at least the people in it. That's what means that he's our head. We sit under him. We worship him. We try to copy him. 
in what we are and how we lead and what we're trying to do, and we don't always get it right, we're trying to let him be our head. That's the primary thing that I want to tell you today. Let's stop and think about what I didn't say, though. A theological doctrine doesn't shape us, except the doctrine of Jesus as our head, which is a theological one. But we're not shaped by Reformed theology or Arminian theology. We're not shaped by church planning strategies, denominations, trends, or what's cool. We're shaped by who Jesus is, whether that's cool or strategic or not. We believe that there was a historical person named Jesus who came to live amongst us, was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, walked on this earth to show us who and what God is like, went to Jerusalem, was killed and sacrificed for us, and then God vindicated him by raising him from the dead who promised he's going to come back and save us. That is our hope. Now let's work out what are the implications for Jesus as our head are. The first thing that I want to say, and I already said we aren't doing a particular theology, what we are in our theology is a Jesus himself. Thirteen years ago when I was applying to work at Sierra Grace, I was, Cammie and I were still living in Australia, and we'd applied for several jobs, but it's hard to get a pastoral job when you live in Australia and you were moving to, to halfway around the world, right? And so I'd apply for the job, and there'd be two candidates that were close, and they say, well, let's interview the one that we don't have to fly from Australia first. So I kept not getting the job, for better or worse, for all of us here, and... Uh, and I said, at one point, we just said, you know what, we're not going to even apply until we get back to the States because you get emotionally involved and hopeful about this may be the place where we're taking our family and starting over again, and it doesn't work, and there's just this, it's too much, right? But then we saw this one application for this place called Sierra Grace Fellowship. They didn't call themselves a church. They weren't hiring a pastor. They were hiring a lead elder. And we couldn't even tell whether they were a regular, normal, mainline, you know, evangelical church or just a bunch of hippies living in the foothills. It was, it was, yeah, I know. Jim, I'd call you a lot of things. A hippie may not be one of them, though, right? So, so. I'm like, I thought, well, we knew Auburn, and it's in a good location between where my family is and all that. And so I said, you know, I'm just going to send them an application. One of the things that they wanted to know is, like, tell me in 50 words or less what your theology is. Well, good luck with that. Um, But luckily, um, I listened in class one day and realized that you can sum up my theology and this theology about Jesus being the center um, by taking a look at what's called the Apostles' Creed. One of the earliest creeds in the church, I realize you can't read that, but I just probably didn't care about you. Um, One of the earliest creeds in the church is this one called the Apostle Creed, and it starts with a statement about God the Father, ends with kind of a summary statement, but the center of it, which I'm going to read you the whole thing, but is about who Jesus is. Um, And uh, unbeknownst to me, when I sent this to Sierra Grace, it was the perfect answer, at least it got me the job for whatever the worth is worth. The perfect answer to what this church sees as their center theologically. Listen to this. I know you've heard it before, but listen to it again. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And now here's the Jesus part. I believe, and we know it's the Jesus part because it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son, the only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. 
He descended to the death, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And now the summary. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen? Amen. That's what we believe. You know, and I think we all shake our head and say, I believe in that too. And it sounds really easy like that. But you know what the hard part about just keeping Jesus as the center of the core of our theology here is it takes discipline. And it takes discipline to make sure that we leave those things as the center things. Because I have some things that I'm really passionate about. I've shared with you in the fall that my wife is a scientist, and we've had to deal with the issue of the relationship between faith and science for a long time as we worked through that thing. The way I view the relationship between science um, is something, like I said, we worked through, but it's a little different than the way Ben views it, right? And so what I want to say then is that I have to be disciplined to say, you know what? It's okay if we disagree on this. It is outside of the center. I love Ben, and I know on the center you've heard him pray and weep about his love for Jesus. Ben's one of our other elders. And we can disagree. But we have to keep the center the center. And each one of us is going to have some issue that is way more important to you that won't show up in the Apostles' Creed. We don't say anything about how Jesus is going to return. Right? We say that he is going to return, but not specifically how. Have you ever known Christians to fight over that? Yeah, right? We don't say anything about how actually salvation works. We know that it does. It does say something. We know that Jesus was the sacrifice and was vindicated, but exactly the role of free will that plays into that process, the Bible doesn't make completely clear to us. And so you can believe either one of those things, And that's fine. You can be a Calvinist or you can be an Arminian. If you love Jesus, you were okay with that. But it's going to take all of us to be disciplined to remember that that's not the center. And you know, all of those arguments have been around for a long, long time, haven't they? And we haven't fixed them in 2,000 years or solved them. I don't think we're going to do it today. But what we can agree on is there was a historical man who came and loved us showed us the nature of God, sacrificed and served us by going all the way to the cross, and was vindicated by the creator of the whole world. Amen? Not only does he shape the way we think, he shapes the way we act, huh? Or at least he should. Jesus should shape the way that we live. Look at what Mark tells us in chapter 1, and all the synoptics do this as well. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, not far from where he grew up, and is calling disciples. And look how he says it. He says, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. So um, he chose fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. I love this for a couple reasons. One is he said, come follow me, right? Following is an active act, isn't it? You can't follow part-time. You have to follow full-time. 
The second you stop following, your leader's lost and you don't know where to go, huh? But notice it ascribes both action and thought, huh? I'm agreeing to do that intellectually. I'm going to follow him. But it makes a claim on my life and the way I live. And as I follow Jesus, I see how he lives. And I start to act a little bit more like him. You know, I know when I follow him that every third step he hops once, right? And so pretty soon before even knowing it, I'm doing the same thing. And I find that's the way real change actually happens in our life. I was, you know, hypothetically, Mike and I were sitting around, Mike Wilson, another one of our elder candidates, and we're having an argument, and he makes a point and thinks, oh, I'm wrong, he's right, I'm going to change that. That doesn't happen very often, does it? But I watch Mike live and see him serve and care for the elderly and the poor and parent. And as I spend time with him, I think, oh, maybe I should do that that Mike just did. So one of the things that it means besides thinking theologically like Jesus did is walking and following him and acting like him. Two things that I want to point out and highlight about following Jesus and how it's changed me as a pastor and a leader or things that I've noticed over the years is one of the things that's pretty surprising to me, and it shouldn't be, but it is, is the way Jesus treats people who are at risk. Now, I think of the woman caught in adultery, but if you really want to take a look at this, if you go read the Gospel of Luke and see all the people, the stories that are in there that are unique to Luke, almost every one of them is about a poor person or a woman or a widow, and we get to see the way Jesus interacts with them. And the thing that strikes me time after time after time is he's so gracious with them. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? She was wrong. But the people who caught her were using her as a trap. Huh? She had become an object that they were going to use to prove that they were right and Jesus was wrong. His response to her sin was grace. And he gave her dignity and forgave her and sent her on her way. Huh? Jesus does that over and over again. His life is shaped not by his primarily judging people. Well, he does that too. But particularly when he finds people at risk, he's gracious and kind and redemptive. Now, he does get upset every once in a while, huh? And almost solely the people that Jesus gets upset with in the Gospels are the Pharisees, right? The religious people of his day that were really concerned with being holy and keeping the rules. Does that sound like anyone you know? That's us, huh? The people that are trying to be holy and keep the rules and do it right. That's an incredible warning to us. And the reason Jesus gets mad at those people is that they lose kind of their perspective. Remember the story, I think it's Matthew chapter 12, and he's walking through a grain field, and they bring to Jesus on the Sabbath, the day you don't work, a man with a broken hand. And they think, oh, we got him. Because if he heals his hand on the Sabbath, he's doing work and he's broken the law. But if he doesn't, he's not nice. What does Jesus do? He heals the hand. He reminds the people very sternly, the Pharisees, that the Sabbath was made for people, right? 
I think that's a word for us. We can be so concerned on getting it right and that, and then we do it that way. We can't ever learn, lose fact that every person you encounter is made in God's image and he loves them recklessly. And his grace is abundant. Is there judgment? Yeah, and he'll take care of that too. But the primary thing I see from him and I try to model and follow him in is be gracious first. Kind to those who are broken and at risk. Amen? The next thing that I want us to, to, to think about what it means to have Jesus as our head in is Jesus is the one we worship and serve. And those two things go together. Right? And I think the reason that we go together is the thing that we serve and spend our time with is almost always the thing that we worship. Um, but that's a sermon for another time. Okay? But what must we say about worship first? Worship is not singing. Worship can be a subset, singing can be a subset of singing, but worship is this idea of making Jesus the one thing in your life. Remember the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan, and Satan saying, if you worship me, I will give you all this power and authority, and everyone will know who you are. And Jesus' response to him was, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship is identifying someone for who they are and being faithful to them. One of my favorite stories of worship in the gospel is from Matthew 14, where Jesus comes walking on the water to the disciples in the middle of the night, and they think he's a ghost, and he climbs into the boat, and they see him for who he is, and they fall down and worship. Because at that moment, as he calmed the sea and walked on water and did things that people can't do, they understood who he was. And by worshiping, we're saying to him, I am yours. I will follow you. I will trust you. And I will hope in you. The problem is, is that being faithful in worship seems like it's been a problem for the people of God from the beginning of the biblical story to the end. Uh, think back to those Israelites in Exodus. God miraculously rescued them from the Egyptians, and he led them out of Egypt, and they went through the Red Sea, and that was pretty awesome. And then, you know, they got to the other side, and they get to the other side, and they're living over there, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty, and God gives them bread from nowhere and water from a rock, and that was awesome too, right? And then just so that they knew he was there and he was leading him, he showed up in the day by a big cloud and at night by a cloud of fire, and that was awesome too. If ever there was a people in the face of the world that should have been able to keep God their God and not worship something else, it would have been these guys, right? They'd see him do mighty deeds. They'd see him rescue them or save them. He'd seen them provide for them and that they knew his presence was with them. Moses goes up on the hill to get the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and what's he find them doing? Worshipping a cow that had done nothing for them. Strike one. David, a man after God's own heart, had been faithful to go kill Goliath with a stone because he knew that God was his protector and the one who would hand him over to him. He ends up being in the court of Saul, and he knew that Saul was God's appointed, and God kept bringing him to him and saying, okay, here he is, you can kill him. And David said, I'm not going to touch God's anointed, because he was worshiping God alone and knew that God was the one who had to take his anointed honor off the throne. Until one day, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, Bathsheba's standing 
on the rooftop on the top of him, and all of a sudden he lets his sexuality get in the way of his, his fidelity to keeping God his God, doesn't he? And he makes the giant mistake of his life that costs him forever and ever. He struggled to keep God as God and let something else get in the way. And then final story I'll say about this is Judas, one of the twelve. One of the twelve luckiest people in the face of human history that got to spend three years walking with Jesus himself and follow him and see him act graciously and justly, kindly and wisely, heard his teaching and all that. And he was so enamored with money rather than Jesus, he betrayed him for 30 shekels of silver. There are all kinds of things that we can put in place of Jesus. And most of the time, we do it when we don't even know we're doing it. And most of the time, they're good things, right? I made a list, and I won't read it to you all, but they look like money, baseball, our children. Now we're getting personal, huh? This is a political year. Have you guys ever known someone to put politics up on an idol that becomes more important to them than following Jesus? I know I haven't, but maybe you have. Right? Their Instagram account. How many friends do they have? Think about it. What's the thing that you love and you find that you are prone to bring into the center of your life and put your time on? Be careful, and this is preaching to myself as well as you. Those are the things that we are worshiping or are tempted to worship, aren't we? But you know what? Misplaced worship or proper worship always, it seems, or often is connected to service um, or proclamation. In Matthew 28, Jesus' final words to his disciples are, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go. It's an action again, right? Worship and serve the Lord your God, Jesus says. Go. And who is he going to? It says nations here. The word in Greek is ethnos. They didn't have nations like we did. It would be more like go to all people. Whether they're rich, poor, comfortable, Christian, non-Christian, you fill in the blank. But we're to go to them. Why? Because we're the fullness of Jesus, the church, aren't we? We're supposed to show him the character of the church. One of the dangers we have as Christian peoples is sometimes the world is unkind to us or looks down on us. You know what? As you grow up, you've got to get used to it. One of the things I love about my job is the second thing most people know about me is what I do for a living. And so they're going to respond to me one of two ways. They're either interested or repelled. It's their problem, not mine. I didn't do anything to them, right? Get used to it. But we're called to go. Do the people that you spend most time with know who you are, what you believe, that you work with and go to school with? If they don't, you're not going. If you live in a setting where there are no Christians in your life, then you're not going. Because we can do that too, huh? Set up groups and isolated things where the only people that we ever come in contact with are people that think and, and are like us. That's dangerous. And more important, it's not what Jesus called us to do. And once we go, what are we supposed to do? Get them to pray the sinner's prayer and move on? 
No, because if we do that, we start to treat them like objects that we put a notch in our belt, right? We're supposed to make disciples. And that's a long-term project. You walk beside the person that you live with and share your life with and hopefully live in a way that's compelling, not because you're good, because Jesus is good. And they see who you are, and the job doesn't end when they pray that prayer. It's only beginning. And we're all here to do it together. Dom and Hannah are going to do a fitness class. Everyone loves fitness, right? They're using their gifts. They're awesome. You might have one friend who that would be the thing that they'd love to do. Everyone, I mean, if I wasn't teaching, I'd be going to Kevin's class because I love eating more than I love fitness. (laughs) But we're in it together. And guys, it's going to cost us something. Did it cost those 12 disciples that followed him? Each one of them, history tells us, was martyred for what they believed. You know what the striking thing I find out about in the New Testament? Well, first of all, no one's ever complaining about that. They knew that was the cost of following him, and that's what they signed up with. Are we committed like that? Are we willing to sacrifice for the gospel? The last thing I want to talk to you about, and hopefully we're doing better. I talked a long time in the first service. You guys are lucky. I want to talk about eldership a little bit. Jesus is our center, right? That's our theological and applied center. Who we're trying to be and what we're striving for and how we make decisions. But we do have leadership that's in the form of people. At Sierra Grace, those elders um, are a group of men. Um, and that's a subject for another discussion, that they're men, um, but they are folks that express a gift, okay? What I mean by that, it's not a title that we vote for, but what we do is we see someone in our, in our body is, ex, um, living out what we call the gifts of eldership, Okay? And then what we do is once we see it, so for example, John Odies and Mike Wilson have been elder candidates for this year. We've seen them do these things. We invite them to join us to get to know them, and then we'll be presenting them to you in a a short bit here for um, a final approval, right? Um, But we've seen them use these gifts, and I'm going to work those out in just a little bit. And now we recognize them and say, come and join us. But before we get to exactly what the giftedness of elders look like, I also want to say, here's um, Romans 12. Notice what Romans 12 says. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Okay? God gives us gifts, and then he gives us a list. The one who exhorts the gift of exhortation in his exhortation. The one who gives in generosity. The one who leads with zealousness or passion. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Right? Paul's saying to you, I've given this church a whole bunch of different gifts. Use them. And use them to God's glory. And don't use them shyly. Use them with boldness, right? You know what I think marks a mature person in Christ? They know who God's made them to be. They know who their gifts are. And they're okay with that. And they use them boldly. Sometimes immaturity looks like, man, I wish I had the gift of exhortation, but I've got the gift of giving. 
I really want to exhort, so I'm going to apply my will to make sure I'm an exhort or, or a preacher, right, or a leader. That just causes problems for everyone around you, huh? The immature person tries to be something that God didn't make them, and they struggle to do it. And then the people around him who they're imposing their desired gift on struggle as well, right? Maturity is saying, you know, God knew me and made me, and I'm wonderfully made, and I'm going to be the person that he made me to be. So eldership is one of those gifts. Before we hash out for you a little bit about what that looks like, I want to say the most important thing about a church leader, whether it's an elder, a deacon, or on staff, is that their character is above reproach. And if we read 1 Timothy, where Paul is giving instructions to Timothy, who's a young pastor um, in Ephesus again, this is what he says about the character of a leader. Now, the overseer, speaking directly of elders, he's going to apply this to deacons later, is above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see his children obey him. He must do so with, in a manner worthy of full respect. The characteristics of a biblical leader is that they're above reproach. Number one, at the top of the list, probably should say they love Jesus and follow him, and this is who they are. If you're the kind of person that has incredible intellectual gifts, but you rub people wrong, you might not be this, huh? Because what's going to happen is we need this person to be, when things go badly, that you respect him for who he is so much that if he tells you something that you'd rather not hear, You're willing to listen to him because you know what kind of person he or she is. That's what God wants from a biblical leader. Okay? Now let's kind of work out just a little bit what eldership or what those characteristics or what that giftedness looks like. I'm going to borrow from three different texts in the New Testament. The first is from 1 Peter 5 where Peter is speaking to the elders. And he says, exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, and be examples to that flock. What does it mean to be a shepherd? I was first sitting in my office, and the first thing I wrote is that the shepherd loves the sheep. And then I thought about that and thought, well, that's probably not right. You know, he doesn't say you have to love them. He says you have to shepherd them. And growing up on the farm, there's another great story about me and sheep, but I don't have enough time to tell you that. Another day, you're, you're lucky, you'll look forward to that. But sheep aren't the most lovable creatures all the time. They do their own thing, they're skittish and kind of frankly stupid. Okay? Um, we're not told to love them, we're told to shepherd them. And you know what the shepherd does for them? He provides for them. He feeds them and waters them and he protects them. He makes sure that the wolves, the bad guys, and the sheep stealers don't take advantage of them. The job of an elder is to provide and protect you, to walk alongside you and make sure that you have the things that you need to thrive and live the life God wants you to be. The next thing that it says about an elder or an overseer, as the NIV translates it there, is that they're able to teach. I think it's important that we stop and think about that a little bit. That word again is to Timothy. Timothy is probably you know, 50 A.D., 50 A.D., 60, 
a church this big didn't exist in the world at that point. And none of them had a building like we do or someone who was a preacher that's doing what I'm doing right now. They're much more like our home groups. And so as we think someone who's able to teach, sometimes we fall right into the, an elder must be a preacher. No, I don't think that's what it means because this didn't even exist when Timothy wrote that, right? An elder must be able to explain the gospel. Someone comes to you that doesn't know what it means to be Christian. He has to be able to come and sit down and say, this is what it means to follow Jesus, who he was and what he did for us. This is harder. That's easier, right? That's a dialogue. This is a monologue. Elders have to be able to articulate the gospel. Deacons don't. That qualification for deacon is not there in 1 Timothy. So if you're not one that struggles with that or has that problem, it's not like there's nothing for you to do. There's plenty, right? And our deacons are wonderful. Here at Sierra Grace, they take care of the finances, the building, and the coffee, right? How important is that? The last thing and maybe the most important thing that elders, not, I don't know, important, but... Um, it is our job from Ephesians 4, and this is Paul's word to the apostles, preachers, evangelists, and I forgot one, but um, thing. He says he wants to, these, the leaders are to equip the people for the works of service. Christianity is a participation sport. The works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Some translations have say the body of Christ may be, uh, until we reach the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. It's our job to equip you, to teach you, to make sure that you're learning and serving and in community together. For what purpose? That we might be united and we might grow up into maturity. We don't want the people of Sierra Grace to always be an infant tossed to and fro by whatever theology or group comes along. We prayfully hope that we're all in this process of growing into the likeness of Christ over, over a period of years together. The Harris have done a wonderful job of doing spiritual formation, and that's what they're working on. They want to give us the tools and the patterns in our lives to grow us up into the image of Christ and grow us together. So it's, you know, I think it was a pretty good thing that the elders brought them in here to help us do that, right? Phenomenal. How do these elders function? Two quick things, okay? And uh, maybe more than two. Um, we're led by the Holy Spirit of Jesus, our head, right? He's the one who leads us. Good elders are constantly aware of that and trusting him to be the one, not my agendas, but his, to lead us and guide us. And when we do that, there's two things that we do together. We do things unanimously. If we decide that we're going to do something like a new program or a new elder or a new staff member, every one of us needs to agree that that's the right thing to do. That's really relational and requires a lot of patience. So one of the things that you need to know as you watch us work is that sometimes that process can take even up to years as we listen and grow together and change together. 
But we have to honor one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and work to make sure that we're listening and honest with one another.